Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of Sergeant First Class Junior Edwards. Edwards was served with Echo Company, part of the 2nd Battalion, 23rd Infantry Regiment that's rolled up under the 2nd Infantry Division during the Korean War. Specifically, we're going to talk about actions on January 2nd, 1951, during the First Battle of Wanju. Now, to back up a little bit and talk about the Korean War kind of at a high level, the conflict really kicks off in June of 1950, but the roots of that conflict go back to the Second World War. Korea was pretty well beat up after the Second World War. And for territories, cities, states, countries like that, the victors, the Soviet Union, the, the allies, the Soviet Union, Great Britain, the United States, the Western democracies, put together a plan to help reconstruct these areas. So one great example, a famous example is Berlin. Berlin was split between the United States and the Soviet Union or between the Western allies and the Soviet Union to help reconstruct and rebuild a city that had been absolutely devastated in the, in the final days of the Second World War. That would be a flashpoint in the Cold War, as we all know. That same thing happened in Korea. So Korea was divided. Korea in the Second World War was one country. Korea until 1948, I believe it is, definitely for a little while after the Second World War, is one country. And then tensions start to increase. And the decision is made, why don't we put a border across here and we'll call this part North Korea, this part South Korea. Soviet Union, you work with standing up and helping to redevelop the North, the United States and the Western allies will help with redevelopment and reconstruction in the South. As we know now, after the Cold War, that's a recipe for disaster. We watched it take place all around the world throughout the Cold War. What would happen is in two short years, after both of these you know, new Koreas, I guess I'll say, both North and South Korea see themselves as the true government of Korea, um, eventually there's going to be border clashes. And in June of 1950, North Korea will cross that border into South Korea, kicking off the Korean War. In short order, this is viewed as an invasion really around the world. So the United, the newly formed United Nations decides that they're going to intervene with the bulk of the forces coming from the United States. Now, the U.S., coming fresh off the Second World War, the victors, you know, on the side of the victors in the Second World War, confident, um, experienced to a degree for the, the people that are still in the military. There's, there's certainly some experience. Remember, we're talking barely five years, really within five years since the end of the Second World War. But that's also time for a lot of turnover. It's time for a lot of equipment to not be maintained as well as it could be. It's time for a lot of institutional knowledge to leave the military that we built up over the, the time that we were fighting in the Second World War. So although it's a short five-year window, we are going to war with a very, very different military in 1950 than we completed the Second World War with in 1945. Surprisingly different given how, how short of a window that is. But as you see in all these conflicts, the, the country goes through such a change to stand up their military and the mass enlistments and the draft and the whole country is organized behind this. It's it's not something we can sustain. It's a short time, short duration for the country to maintain that level of military preparedness. 
it, it it's going to change drastically in the very short term after it's um, no longer needed. And that's what we saw in the, the time period between 1945 and 1950. Nonetheless, U.S. troops land in Korea very shortly after the North invades. And we think, here we go. Let's let's push the North Koreans back. But we're surprised. And this is something I want to get into a little bit in this episode is just how how interesting it would have been to have been a spectator, to have been listening to this and trying to keep up with this war back in the States or anywhere around the world, because it feels like such a seesaw. It just feels like it's back and forth. And time and again in the Korean War, this isn't a very long conflict. We're talking about less than three years. Time and again, or about three years, time and again, it feels like each side is on the brink of defeat. I don't remember that. That that doesn't come to mind in the Second World War. That doesn't come to mind in the a little bit in the First World War, right at the very beginning, but in modern wars, we don't really see that. Korea, Vietnam, or you know, Vietnam, the First Gulf War, Iraq, Afghanistan, we don't have this like brink of defeat over and over again. It would have been just whiplash trying to keep up with, are we winning or are we about to lose in the Korean War? Now, after American troops land, we think we're going to make this this great progress and, and we're the big big, bad American military, right? We just came off the Second World War victory and we're just not quite ready. We don't, we're not in the right position. We don't, uh, we're not able to push back as expected. And we're just about, the United States and the UN forces just about pushed off the peninsula. Eventually the United States will, will break out of this little area in the Southeast known as the Pusan perimeter and they'll push North. And all of a sudden the North Korean army looks vulnerable. So this army that was on the brink of pushing the UN forces off the peninsula, all of a sudden is, is reeling back. The American air power and naval power takes form and or really takes hold. And now we can see, you know, talking to this whiplash, we can see how the United Nations is going to win this war. Here it comes. Let's go. And they start pushing back north, moving from south to north through the peninsula. Before long, They've pushed the North, Korea, the North Korean troops, at this point, just North Korean troops, across the previous boundary between North and South Korea, and they keep going. And there's kind of the thought of, well, how far should we go? But that question eventually is not going to be um, answered by the United States because China is going to get involved in October of 1950. So, you know, again, we're talking just months into this war. And when China gets involved, it changes the entire outlook and changes, you know, the direction that this war could go going forward. China is going to break up their involvement in the war into phases. Phase one is going to be a surprise attack as the United States nears the Chinese border moving through North Korea. A major concern for China because they... They have, at this point, they only share a border with North Korea. North Korea, a, a fellow communist country, a, an ally. They don't really want to share a border with South Korea, a United States and Western Democratic ally. It really doesn't look very good to them to see United Nations and American troops closing in on their border. There's a, a obvious reason why China wants to see North Korea win the war. But... This is the Cold War. And remember, in the Cold War, we have all of these conflicts where there is just enough deniability to not launch the world into a 
World War III type scenario. So China doesn't get involved in this conflict, but the people, the People's Volunteer Army gets involved. This is an organization that is supposedly outside the control of the Chinese government. So it's not the Chinese government fighting this war. It's a, it's a group of volunteers that are organized into military formations, outfitted with Chinese equipment, and they are sent across the border to fight the United Nations and American soldiers. Phase one is going to be the surprise attack that happens in October of 1950. And it is, it is a, uh, a decimating battle. The United States and the United Nations forces suffer pretty substantially. It's a surprise attack. We didn't know that there were Chinese troops coming at us. We were, you know, we're chasing this not defeated, but, but pretty beaten North Korean force. The, you know, at this point in the war, the U S and United Nations are building up their capabilities and the North Koreans are kind of starting to tail off. That's who we think we're fighting and bam, here comes China. Now it's a different war. That's phase one. Phase two is after that kind of surprise punch. Phase two is going to be November, December of 1950. And it's going to include, you know, the way I look at it is we now know China's in the war. The cards are on the table and they're going to try to force us out of North Korea. Phase two includes things like the Battle of the Chosen Reservoir, major, major battles in North Korea, moving the United Nations forces out of North Korea back across that border. So again, we're talking this seesaw back and forth. In less than a year, the United States is going to, in no time, knock the North Koreans back out of South Korea. And then we get there and, oh my God, we're about to be pushed off the peninsula. But then we break out and we push all the way back into North Korea. And then China attacks and, oh my God, now we're falling back into South Korea again. It's less than a year. It'd be interesting to be in that time period thinking of how this how is this being reported? How can you track it? How well can you actually track what's going on? Now that we, you know, looking back now, it's still complicated. 50, 60, 70 years later, even as we have more information and can look at it from different perspectives, it's still a complicated war to keep track of. Nonetheless, after the United States and UN forces move out of North Korea and establish some boundaries back near the, or defensive lines back near the initial, um, the initial, uh, boundary between North and South Korea, China is going to order what's known, China and North Korea in conjunction will order what's called the third phase offensive. And the third phase offensive is the idea of finally pushing the UN and American forces off the peninsula for good. So kind of back to the original aims of the invasion in June, June of 1950, let's unite these two Koreas, just get these, you know, these foreign fighters, these foreign militaries, United Nations and U.S., troops out of here and we can you know, win, the, win the war. The, the Chinese and North Koreans can win the war. It's during that offensive that one of the major objectives is going to be an area known as Wanju. It is in South Korea. It's about 50 miles south, southeast of Seoul. And in order, as the Americans start to see this offensive materialize, they're going to order the second infantry division to reinforce this area at Wanju. And they're going to get there on December 28th, 1950. Now, to move ahead a little bit, this battle is going to cost, this third phase offensive is going to cost the Chinese and the North Korean military quite a few more casualties. And it's going to feel a little bit like 
this is the wave crashing. And after this, the American and UN forces are going to be able to push back again. But again, it's, it's very, very challenging to watch the back and forth and back and forth. But the this third phase offensive kicks off right at the end of 1950. And one of the reasons they're going to struggle and, and suffer as many casualties as they do during the Battle of Wanzhou is because of people like Sergeant First Class Junior Edwards. Edwards and his men are responsible for holding a hill, a strategic hill along this defensive line that they are that the American forces are holding to keep the North Korean and now attacking Chinese forces at bay. As they're holding this hill, the enemy attacks North Korean. And I think the area that um, that Edwards was in was predominantly North Korean forces that attacked and the Chinese were a little further West, but nonetheless, the enemy attacks, they occupy a small hillside position, a little bit elevated from Edwards and his men and start raining down machine gun fire into he and his guys. So without hesitation, Edwards grabs a handful of grenades and charges. He charges this machine gun position, throwing grenades as he goes, fully exposed to enemy fire. And in this crazy assault, drives that enemy team away from that position. So it it wasn't like a a bunker defensive. The the Americans are in the defensive position. So this wasn't like some, some concrete reinforced pillbox. This was a hasty emplacement. But this this crazy charge drove them away, reduced the fire from that point. Edwards is pushed back from small arms fire. He comes back to his guys. And a short time later, a a second machine gun team, or maybe it's the same team, reoccupies that position because it it has this ability to look down into where the Americans are fighting from. So again, an enemy machine gun team laying fire into the American lines. So again, Edwards resupplies on grenades, and charges that machine gun team. This time is different. This time he gets close enough to the crew with his grenades, charging with his grenades, throwing as he goes, to destroy the weapon system, destroy the machine gun, and kill the entire crew. So two charges directly into machine gun fire. And at this point, he has destroyed one weapon, and the crew members, again, moves back to his guys. Now, it's not, remember, the Americans are in a defensive position. They're not trying to move out and take terrain. So this area where this, this enemy machine gun keeps him, keeps setting up is not, it's not viable for the Americans to take and hold it. They have their defensive positions. The problem is they just, they have to make sure that the enemy can't hold this, this little piece of terrain, but they're not the only ones that know that. And later in the fight, another machine gun team, another enemy machine gun team and another crew with their weapon system, moves back into that position and again starts laying down fire into Edwards and his men at risk of wiping them out and and causing their position to be overrun. So for the third time that day, Edwards resupplies on grenades once more and charges directly into the hail of gunfire, throwing grenades as he goes, and once more destroying a machine gun position, destroying the machine gun itself and killing the entire crew. So he is now charged three times into enemy fire, destroyed two machine guns, and killed the, the crew of two of those weapon systems. It's during this third charge that Edwards is hit and mortally wounded, killed by enemy fire at the age of 24. Because Edwards would not allow that crew to set in their position, because he would not allow the enemy to hold that hilltop, he bought his team enough time on the hillside to be able to dig in and repel the enemy attack time and time again to where they could hold that line 
during the First Battle of Wanzhou. In turn, for his actions on that day, January 2nd, 1951, Sergeant First Class Junior Edwards would be awarded posthumously the Medal of Honor. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.